Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, one of the things the pandemic has done is it caused a lot of people who are just a few years away from retirement to push it forward and to retire. On top of that group, there is also a large group mostly of now stay-at-home moms who found that there was no childcare to be had, so, so they themselves also stepped out of the workforce. And what it led to was a whole lot of jobs not being filled. And they have created an inconvenience for every one of us, have they not? Now, if you are an employer, what kind of person do you want at minimum? And you want somebody who's willing to work, right? Somebody who can at least learn the job and give an effort. You don't want somebody who... uh, As Tim Fisher once said, can only fog a mirror. You know, they have to be more qualified than that. Same thing if you're an employee. If you're there and you have other people who are supposed to be carrying the load along with you, you don't want one joker to be sitting over there chatting with his friends while you're busting your tail, right? Or somebody over here looking at ESPN on their phone. Well, well, you carry the load. That is just not fair, and, and you don't like it. Here we get to see into the heart of God what he expects from his people as far as the effort they put forward in this life. It is not concerned in this particular story. About salvation, it is concerned about our sanctified life while we're alive in this world. And he shows that he does expect something. He expects fruit. And he expected it of Israel for starters. You look at the Old Testament lesson. This is being spoken right when it's happening. And, and God, he, he's a very patient employer. It wasn't like when they didn't lift their finger for a week, he got on them. Now, he waited really functionally 500 years before acting uh, to fire them, essentially. What did he see? And what did he want? He wanted uh, a just and kind society. He'd given them laws that would define how that would work. He had set them apart and gave them identity that that should have helped them to, to be such a group of people. But they weren't. He found them to be very corrupt. The powerful taking advantage of the weak. Justice systems corrupted. Institutions corrupted. He found it all very, very disgusting, not exemplary. Beyond that, some amongst them, and at the time of the gospel lesson, it's definitely the Pharisees, had the unmitigated gall to proclaim themselves to be self-righteous, to walk around high and mighty when they themselves were twisting God's word and corrupting it. That's one way to really get under the skin, if I can use that metaphor, 
of the God who created you. And they did it. They looked for a nerve, and they touched it. And it's not like God didn't give them warning. Over the course of this 500 years, God said prophet after prophet. You go look at the Bible, and you grab it from Isaiah all the way to Malachi. That's a good chunk of the Bible. And that's probably not all the prophets. There are more than that. And what was the generalized response of Israel to all those prophets? They ignored them, and in many cases, they killed the messenger. It's not that that went unnoticed. And then in our gospel reading, even though it's, it is a parable, it's not exactly the way the real world played out, yet it's pretty close. The tenants kill all the prophets that are sent to them. And now the landowner says, I'm going to send my son. They will respect him. God knew very well that they would not. And Jesus being sent wasn't to suddenly make Israel prosperous. It was to pay the price for sin. And yet there is a secondary role that calls the nation of Israel to repentance which would have been enough. But it didn't happen. And Jesus bemoans it in many places. And he says at one spot, you know, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, eh, I wanted to be like a, a hen holding you under my wings, but now see your house is left to you desolate. In that parable, he says, what will the landowner do to those tenants? And these are scary words. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. In history, does that ever play out? Yes, it does. I mean, it's spoken probably 33 A.D., 70 A.D., the Romans come. Of course, the Romans come because they have their own motives, but they are sent. You know that they are moved along by God, and they destroy Jerusalem and the temple. Still, a remnant of Israel sticks around. It's almost like God saying, you know, one more shot, one more shot. And then by the one-teens... There's another hole sweeping through of the Romans, and you couldn't find a Jew in the land after that. Jerusalem ground down to nothing. A Roman city with a Roman name built on top of it. The living amongst Israel scattered to the four winds, not to be gathered together and officially as a nation until 1947. He didn't get his fruit. He didn't get what he expected. So he talks about new tenants. He will lease his lands to new tenants. And in that metaphor, who's the new tenant? We are. That's us. We're now the people of God. 
We're the new Israel. And that term comes from, from Romans. It's, it's written by a man who's Jewish, of course, Paul. We're the people of God. When you look at us, are we less equipped, equally equipped, better equipped than, than Israel to produce? I would say we're better equipped. Israel had a loose idea of how God was going to work salvation. We've got historical hindsight and great explanation. We know that Jesus came and we know what Jesus did and why he did it. And we know the promise that's extended to us. We have eternal life through Christ. Beyond that, we have a knowledge of what God wants from us. And not that Israel didn't, but we do too. And we have the Holy Spirit empowering us. They only had the Holy Spirit given to the prophets. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So you think that there is a call for us to be productive, fruitful? I think there is. Clearly this this parable says that there is. Israel was very confident that they were just fine when they were not fine and they were thrown out. How confident should we be? Let's examine that for a moment. Confidence is not the same as having saving faith. Those are two different things. Saving faith can produce confidence. But it is not saying, I'm sure that I'm saved, that gets you saved. It is a connection to Jesus that gets you saved. If you go to the epistle and you listen to Apostle Paul speak in this particular section of Philippians, there's a certain distressing, I've always found a distressing aspect to to the second half of that reading. He talks about salvation like it is not a done deal for him in some ways. And that has always bothered me. Here's the kind of confidence that we can have. And I'll just speak in terms of myself, but it could be any of us. I am absolutely certain that God sent Jesus Christ, the Son of God, into this world and that he died on the cross for sins and that he lived and kept the law and was risen again. Absolutely certain of that. I can also read, so I am certain, of God making a promise because of that event, promising eternal life. And that promise wasn't just to other people. That promise is to me. I'm certain of that. I am am confident that God is a being that has shown himself over the millennia to be a faithful being. When he makes a promise, he remembers it and he carries it out. I am certain of that. As far as God calling me to be saved by the gospel, I can point to the very fact that I was baptized, that I have known the plan, that I believe 
the plan that it has changed me over the course of time. So all of that's evidence that I am part of the plan. I am certain of that. So if you ask me today, if I were to die today, am I going to heaven? My answer would be absolutely. Not maybe or hope so or, you know, gee, if God would just give me some space. No, it's nothing like that. You can be certain of that. Of what am I not certain? It is possible for people to take the gift of God and to throw it away. To, to leave the gospel either by a lack of repentance or by twisting the gospel and accepting something that they would call the gospel but gets rid of grace in the process or by so neglecting the means of grace that I become sort of a hollowed-out shell of what God has given me. And could that, at least in theory, happen to me? And I've got to say, yes. And that's what Paul is doing. He's saying, it's not like I have laid hold of it yet. You know, when I'm standing in heaven... In front of God, I can say, well, now I'm certain. But until that point, I have to at least keep in theory the threat that sin presents to me living. I can't say it's impossible for it to be taken away because there's too many passages and way too many examples in life to not hold that out as theoretically true. So what do you do? Well, you don't neglect the means of grace, and you don't take sin lightly, and you confess your sins, and you forge ahead. You press ahead, as Paul said, to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. That I have a God-given purpose in this world, and I want to fulfill it. I want to bear fruit. And I realize that this fruit is not a prerequisite to God's love or to my salvation. But it is a product, the fact that I am saved. So here's another place where you can look at yourself. You can look at what level of confidence you have. Does it take grace for granted? Does it doubt grace at all? You can also look at yourself in terms of productivity. If, if today would be it, has your life been productive in the kingdom of God? Realize there's a very broad scope of what God's interested in. What does he seek? He seeks justice, just grabbing from our readings today. He certainly did from Israel as a society. That is the most common word that you find throughout the prophets, that you act justly, that you have grown somewhat anyway into the, in the qualities of God that are possible because the Holy Spirit dwells in you, that you've lived 
with repentance, knowing, identifying sin and turning from it, that you've been humble rather than self-righteous, that you realize your righteousness doesn't come from you, doesn't come from who you know or who you're related to, but it comes from Christ. And the last broad category that I would say you can look at is that you've accomplished the works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. Now, that requires the Holy Spirit to reveal them, of course, but here's a point that I'd like to make. You are not responsible, and I am not responsible, for saving the whole world. God's responsible for saving all those who's going to be saved. We have a tiny cutout slice for us that involves us in our day-to-day life, and the Holy Spirit will reveal it. Have we done it to our knowledge? Will we do it? Is the question. Could somebody who is connected to Christ who's going to have eternal salvation, could they be in life a low producer? You know, the guy playing solitaire when he's supposed to be working. That guy. Yeah. In fact, you go look at the 1 Corinthians 3 passage, the the Three Little Pigs passage, right? And I'm not going to look at it now. If you don't know what it is, it's right there in your outline. Go look it up. And you go look at the end of it, where it says that each man's work will be revealed by fire. And if their work is burned up, meaning you were not productive, you will suffer loss. That person himself will be saved because they're connected to Christ, but only as one passing through the flames. Does that sound like the way that you want to be Entering into heaven, it doesn't to me. It's better than another alternative that I'm going to talk about, but it's not what I want. I want to be someone who produces 30, 60, 90 times as much, to borrow from the sower and the seed parable. Could a person, then, who actually does have grace find themselves thrown out like like the Jewish nation was? And the answer, scary enough, is also yes. And all you have to do is look at the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Once again, it's listed in your, in your outline. Take a look at the one guy who got the one talent. Now, in that story, a group, a guy got ten, and a guy got five, and a guy got one Talent, which is a value of money, a big value of money. What's the one? Well, I got to equate it to they received the gospel. They were given Jesus Christ and the means by which to be saved. And what did they do? In that particular story, they buried it, which is a way of saying they didn't believe it. It was maybe part of their cultural life, but it wasn't part of them. And in the end, when they have to face Christ, 
They have to, they, all they can say is, here's your gospel. I buried it. What does it say of that one steward in the parable of the talents? It says, bind him up and throw him outside into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't think you have to be a great theologian to figure out where that is. So with that said, what is the promise and the warning and how do we approach the rest of our lives? The the blessing is this. We get to be God's tenants. That is a strictly by grace kind of thing. And we don't have to do anything beyond what he has already empowered us to do. His love, our salvation, it all rests on the work of Jesus. It doesn't work on the works of us. Yet, as people who are saved, there is an appropriate response. And we are more than equipped to do it. So here's what we don't want. We don't want to be a low producer, and we sure don't want to be a no producer. And so we set out each day remembering that God can work through us. And that there are things that he cares about. And we care about. And as we get the chance, we, we trust that God's going to work through us, so, so we do it. And we have the opportunity, not just to do a little, but to do a lot. And even when we do a lot, we can say, I'm ready, give me more. And it is always a joy, and it's always a blessing. It's not like a grind, like maybe your job is. I hope not, but maybe. And to be honored by God rather than rebuked by God, that is right there for us to have. So keep this in mind, this this story. It's, it's a bit ominous. It's very ominous for the people of Israel. But let us see it uh, as a blessing that we have now received and bear the fruit that God puts right in front of us. In Jesus' name, amen.